Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. The Republican Party, let's just say it right straight up. The Republican Party has turned into an organized gang of sociopaths. I don't know how to say it beyond that. I mean, you know, Donald Trump doesn't care how many people are stuck in Omaha, Nebraska. You had, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of elderly people who had gone way out to this airport for Trump's psycho rally and the buses brought them in, but they weren't going to take them home. <laughs> this is like a metaphor for the entire Trump presidency. And, and uh, they had about a half a dozen people who ended up in the hospital, over 30 people having, you know, serious symptoms of hypothermia, seizures and things like this. A lot of elderly people. I mean, this is crazy. But they were stuck for hours, three miles from the nearest road or the nearest parking lot in a wind chill, 20 degrees. So what's the deal? Well, one of the defining characteristics of a sociopath, what that word means, I'm not super familiar with the etymology of the word, but I would suggest that it probably means, pathy means illness, right? I think it's from the Greek. And socio is society. And and this is an illness where people basically don't feel like they're part of society. They don't recognize the humanity of other people. A sociopath thinks that they are literally the only real human on the planet. They don't believe that other people feel emotions with the intensity that they feel emotions. They don't believe other people feel pain with the intensity that they feel pain. I mean, think about the guards at Auschwitz. It requires sociopathy to do this kind of thing. They basically think that everybody out there, all the other humans in the world, are just props in the grand drama of their lives. Now, we're seeing this writ large with Donald Trump, and we've been watching it for four years, and we saw the analysis of it with Mary Trump's book about Donald, Never Enough and Too Much. And we get that, but I'm saying this is this has now, the Republican Party has basically said, only sociopaths are welcome here. And if you're going to call out the sociopathy, we're going to get rid of you. And just ask Jeff Flake about that, right? Or Bob Corker. And this really started in 1980 when the Republican Party brought this sociopathic worldview to politics and made it a cornerstone of their policy as well as a criteria for elective office. Ronald Reagan reached out to the big corporations and the fat cats, and we're going to get into that in great detail. 
as we talked to Ann Nelson, the author of this new book, Shadow Networks. But Reagan started the sociopathy. He didn't care how many people died as a result of his policies. He didn't, I mean, you know, it just, hey, it doesn't matter. The good people, the rich people, the in-club, our guys, we're all in good shape. So what if we're going to starve the beast? Or that you know, we're going to try and preach that government is the problem, not you know, anything else. And therefore, we need to get rid of government. We need to do away with that pesky you know, Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid and education support and housing support and the right of people to unionize. Yeah, just get rid of all that stuff. So that was Reagan sociopath. George W. Bush, he didn't care how many people died as he lied us intentionally. He knew he was lying, lied us into this war in Iraq, which led to the death of thousands, tens of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, almost certainly millions of Iraqis. To this day, people are still dying every single day because George W. Bush, a sociopath, lied us into a war along with his sociopathic VP, Dick Cheney. Because at that point, by that point in time, Reaganism was so cemented that the rising stars in the GOP basically had to be sociopaths in order to function. But Trump and the GOP's sociopathy isn't just limited to using their supporters as props and letting people, you know, who Donald Trump thinks of as suckers, you know, suffer from hyperthermia. No, this is, this is now spread right across our government as Trump has put lobbyists for industries that kill us in charge of, or steal from us, in charge of virtually every federal agency. The Republican-controlled Environmental Protection Agency just authorized a cancer-causing, deadly, killer, neurologically destructive pesticide for five years. Why? So the giant corporations that fund the Republican Party and their shareholders could get more profits. The Republican-controlled Interior Department, he's got a coal lobbyist running the Interior Department. They're destroying our national parks and selling off our public lands to Republican-connected, Republican donor mining and drilling companies. The Republican-controlled Agriculture Department is cutting people off food stamps during the Trump Depression. While the Republican-controlled Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, is trying to throw poor people out into the cold during a pandemic. The Republican-controlled Justice Department is openly giving a pass to criminal Republican operative supporters and donors while prosecuting critics of their racist police state tactics. The Republican-controlled Centers for Disease Control and Food and Drug Administration are cutting corners so that Big Pharma can help Trump win the election and thus putting the lives of millions of Americans at risk. The Republican-controlled Centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, is openly promoting, they mailed out this flyer, promoting a corporate product, privatized Medicare, so-called Medicare Advantage plans, that wipe you out when you get sick. Friend of mine in New York just went to his doctor. He was having trouble urinating. He was having pain and they did a PSA test, and it was off the roof. I mean, it was like, you definitely have prostate cancer. In fact, it may have burst out of your prostate already. He hadn't seen a doctor in years. He's uh, 66 years old. He hadn't signed up for Medicare. 
And so when he went to his doctor's office, they said, oh, well, you know, our doctor's office is associated with a hospital group that has its own Medicare Advantage program. Let's sign you up for it. So they signed him up for it. And then he discovered that none of the cancer centers in New York will be paid for by this Medicare Advantage program. So he still hasn't seen a doctor. It's been months. And our federal government is promoting this, these Medicare Advantage programs, which, by the way, are going to make it really difficult to pass Medicare for all. Republican-dominated media organizations, radio and TV stations are daily trafficking in easily disproven lies and constantly trying to gin up racial hatred. Why? To benefit the oligarch class, the sociopaths. Republican-aligned billionaires financed a multi-million dollar campaign to put right-wing judges on the Supreme Court. And those judges are preparing to repeat their 2000 scam of handing the White House to a guy who loses the popular vote and only seizes the Electoral College through voter suppression. There's not a single, honest to God, think of this. If you can name one, call me and you will win the prize for the day. But I can't find a single elected Republican with any consequential profile in the United States who acknowledges the real dangers of climate change and the straightforward solution of ending our dependence on fossil fuels. Why? Because the fossil fuel billionaire sociopaths own all these Republican members of Congress sociopaths. Republicans celebrate Citizens United because it lets the billionaires own them, support them, fund them, finance them, give them million dollar a year salary jobs when they leave Congress. Anyhow, let's pick up some phone calls here. Randy in Middlesbrough, Kentucky. Hey, Randy, what's up? How's it going, Tom? All right. I got one example. This is it. You um, always ask if a Republican has ever done anything for their people. And it's a mayor um, in Texas from Georgetown, Texas, Dale Ross. He uh, took his, his city completely off the grid. And they are now on solar power and I believe wind power as well. And its uh, population is 67,000 people. That's it. Is that the town that got wiped out by the tornado and some Hollywood folks came in and helped them out? Or that was in Kansas, wasn't it? I guess I'm thinking of it. No, no, no. Wasn't that a a couple years back. back? Yeah. Yeah, this well, that's interesting, uh, Andy. I, you know, uh, this is the best I got yeah. for your. Um, for my contest. Okay. My my contest, by the way, is if you can name one law that was proposed by Republicans, passed by Republicans, (laughs) whose principal benefit is the average working person, you win the award. But, but hey, I'd love to know more about this Republican mayor and maybe even have him on the air. Randy, can you tweet uh, um, information about that to me? Smithsonian Magazine article Mm -hmm. here. It yep. is a couple of years old. It's from April 2018. Oh, tweet it to me. Up. Let's see what I Tweet it to up. me. I'll check it out. Oh, okay. okay sure. I got I to run. Uh, Randy, thank you for the call. So what's the deal? Well, yeah, Republicans embrace white racist gangs that pretend they're militias because they'll intimidate people of color who tend to vote Democratic. Sociopathy cannot be cured. This is a basic tenet of of psychotherapy. What you do with sociopaths is you identify them, you isolate them, and you do everything you can to minimize the damage that they're gonna do to society and to the people around them. And we have to do that politically. These Republican sociopaths need to be isolated, shunned, and limited before they destroy our nation and gut democracy around the world. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So you think we can pull it off? For really, truly extraordinary efforts, 
something that you know we have done occasionally over the years. Ann Nelson has written an extraordinary book. Our conversation is a great minds conversation here. The book is called Shadow Network, Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Ann Nelson is a journalist, an adjunct professor of international public affairs, an adjunct research scholar at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. She's also a fellow Project Censored Award winner for her reporting work uh, back in El Salvador. I have, I've gotten four of those Project Censored Awards. And Ann is also a winner. Uh, Ann-Nelson.com, spelled just like this, A-N-N-E-Nelson.com is her uh, website. And A-N-E-L-S-O-N-A is her Twitter handle. Ann, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us and thanks for writing this book. I'm really glad you could be with us. Yes, my pleasure. So let's start at the beginning. In fact, I'd like to start prior to the beginning. Back when you were in your 20s, you were a reporter in Central America, and you saw the influence of the American right and the Central American right. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that informed your worldview and perhaps led you to write this book, if it did? Oh, well, yes, I was in my 20s, so I was lacking in experience, but I was a witness to war crimes. And I was witnessing the fact that the Reagan administration was supporting death squads in El Salvador and Contras in Nicaragua that were murdering entire villages in Nicaragua. I went and saw the results of a Contra attack on a daycare center where children were killed in a village called Pantasma. So it obviously made a very deep impression on me. And when I came back to the United States, as again, a 20-something-year-old reporter, I just thought, my country can't possibly be supporting these things. This is not who we are. And then I found out that there were all of these subterranean groups that were filtering money and support and, and governmental lobbying for the death squads. And for Roberto Dabuison, who had been the, who had planned the assassination of Archbishop Romero in El Salvador since then Romero has been named a, a saint by the Catholic Church. So it was a real education by fire. So to what extent are the people who were advocating covert American support, and I, I suspect some of it was overt as well, it certainly was hitting the news occasionally, but particularly the covert American support for right-wing death squads and to overthrow more left-wing governments in Central America. To This was in the 80s during the Reagan administration. The uh, CPN started in 81, if I'm, if I'm recalling from, from your book. Is there an overlap between those folks? And if so, why and how? Absolutely. You had a bunch of extremely conservative Republicans. I mean, we're talking about the radical right. And the Council for National Policy started in 1981, and they were going to be a real foothold for the aggressive foreign policy that was going to be extended, where it looked at every shadow in the corner as a communist plot. And that included church people. It included Catholic priests and nuns, including the American nuns who were murdered in El Salvador. And at the time, I was not aware of how all the mechanics worked. So. What you had with the Council for National Policy in 1981 already was a director uh, named Woody Jenkins, who had been a politician from Louisiana. He got involved with a group called Friends of the Americas. They were funneling money and support 
support to the Contras and other people in the violent right wing of Central America. They got caught up in the Iran-Contra scandal. Oliver North, some of us may remember that name from the past, was a figure that was involved with this group from the beginning and still is. So they were there, but it kind of took me 20 years to unravel all of the, the schemes of what I was observing on the ground in those days. I think most Americans have never heard of the CPN, the Council for Policy Network. The Council for National right. Policy. Council for National Policy. Thank you. CNP. <laughs> and uh, see, this is how, I mean, I've written about this stuff. I haven't written about CNP specifically, but I consider myself fairly well informed. And a lot of what I read in your book was new to me. You know, I knew all about Paul Weyrich and, you know, I, you know, I knew who these guys were, but They've done an extraordinarily good job of flying by the, below the radar. Lay out for us exactly what the Council for National Policy is, how they started, who started it, and who's running it now. This is not a large organization. As I recall, you, you wrote in your book there were 400 members at the moment, more or less. Well, at any given time, when we can get access to their membership list, it's around 400, between 400 and 500 people. But a lot of people move in and out, and they appear to have members who are listed in their newsletter, who aren't listed in their membership roster. So they've kept all of this hidden. And I want to say there's a good reason you can't remember the name. I'm convinced that they chose the most forgettable name they could identify. So the Council for mm -hmm. National Policy. I was researching this sucker for a year before I could make the name stick in my mind. That is how intentionally obscure they are. Now, for those of you who know anything about nonprofit organizations, they're a 501c3, or uh, by the IRS's standards, a charity. So they're supposed to be for nonpartisan, educational, and charitable use. They're a political organization. They're as partisan as it comes. And I have no idea how the IRS has overlooked its activities all of these years and not held them to account. Their executive director, Bob McEwen, at a recent meeting, described them as a consortium of givers. So what they do is they pull together people who can write big checks for political purposes, the major donors, and these have included a lot of people from the fossil fuel world and the DeVosses, the DeVos family of Michigan, whom you might be familiar with. Mm -hmm. Foster Freeze is another one. There are some, some investment bankers in the picture. And they fund strategists who create messaging and campaigns. And they place these campaigns on their media partners. And the media partners help to organize their so-called grassroots organizations. So these groups, which include the National Rifle Association, the anti-abortion Susan B. Anthony list, and many, many others, present themselves to the professional media as expressions of the people, well, they're, they're not. They're top-down creations that are paid for and organized and strategized and messaged by this machine. So you have the pieces of this machine coming to light on the front pages and the individuals connected with it on almost a daily basis. But it has been very difficult to peek behind the curtain and see how the gears turn. In terms of who organized it, it was people who were frustrated by the failure of the Barry Goldwater campaign back in the day. And as you mentioned, Paul Weyrich was one of them, and his 
masterstroke was to co-found the Council for National Policy, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is all about manufacturing laws on a state level, and the Heritage Foundation, which is a think tank which which crafts policies and then pushes them out into their into their network. Paul Weirich was involved with the creation of all three of those. And they were supposed to work together from the beginning, and they have. The other two... Extraordinary stuff. Was the original idea that Weirich and these guys, when they put this thing together, to simply pull together a bunch of rich folks and take over American politics? I mean, it, it, was it that simple? Or am I missing uh, something here? No, because money is not enough by itself. And that was the big lesson they took from the Democrats. There's this moment, this epiphany that they had when they looked at Democrats from the civil rights movement and the fair housing people and the feminists getting together and saying, oh, how do we collaborate? And they said, oh, the right doesn't do that. So they pulled this group together with a master plan. And the master plan was pretty much to take over the culture and to take over the country. And Weirich oversaw a memorandum that stated this in so many words. It was, we have to wage guerrilla warfare on the culture and install right-wing values. We have to overcome the universities and the institutions of knowledge. And we have to basically undermine the federal government, its agencies, and its programs. So he needed partners for this. And Richard Vigory, who more or less invented direct mail for political purposes, was his partner. And then Morton Blackwell, who designed a lot of training programs and recruitment programs for national candidates and campaign managers. The three of them were really the godfathers of, of this organization. It sounds an awful lot like the Powell Memo, which was written in 1971. Lewis Powell, you know, the, the tobacco industry lawyer that Richard Nixon put on the Supreme Court the next year, uh, you know, wrote this memo to Eugene Sindor Jr., the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, laying out, you know, we've got to take over the schools, we've got to take over the courts, we've got to take over the media, we've got to create think tanks, all that kind of stuff. How much overlap is there between these two organizations? Well, or between I, the I Powell haven't... Memo and the creation of CNP? Exactly. I, I haven't seen that the Powell memo led to an organization per se, but the thinking is, is very, very resonant. And I think that there was absolutely mutual influence. And I think that there were these groups in Washington and beyond that were all on the same page looking at how to work together. So you look at these organizations, for example, recently with the whole confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. People say, oh, well, the Federalist Society was involved in promoting her. And, oh, there's this thing called the Judicial Crisis Network that has paid for all of these ads. Well, they're all tied together. It's the same donors. It's the same founders. And they appear in the media as separate voices, but they're singing in tune. It's pretty remarkable. You know, there's a lot of coverage right now about Leonard Leo and his organization getting $80 million in, in dark money that they've spent to put, you know, these three judges on the court. Well, we'll pick up this conversation on the other side of this break. We have to take about a five-minute break here so our uh, commercial stations can do their news break and you know, non-commercial will fill it with a book report. We will be back on the other side of this with Ann Nelson with us. Her new book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. If you have not read this book or not heard about this book, it's mind-boggling. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Back with Ann Nelson about her new book, Shadow Network, right after this. 
It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016. This is page 34. Prior to this, we've set up how conservatives saw the 60s as a time of great social chaos and the rise of Ralph Nader and Rachel Carlson and uh, whole consumer and environmental movements as threats to profitability and business, and they had to do something about it. So page 34. Lewis F. Powell Jr. was just sitting down to breakfast in his suite at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City when he received a call from the White House. The year was 1971, more than 40 years since the last great crash. The 60s had ended and the Vietnam War had destroyed the Democratic Party, leaving Richard Nixon as President of the United States. And Nixon needed a favor. A thin, ascetic man with wispy hair and fragile features, Lewis Powell had ancestral roots in America's first European settlement, Jamestown, and a lifetime of participation in the law. He deeply loved his Richmond, Virginia home and the law practice he had there, which mostly consisted of defending corporate interests and wealthy Southern white men. He walked comfortably, often in crepe-soled shoes, dressed as a Southern gentleman, and spoke so softly that people sometimes leaned forward to listen. But when he spoke, his words were precise, well-measured, and carefully considered. He was one of the most brilliant jurists of his day, and so it's no surprise that the Nixon White House was considering him for a seat on the Supreme Court, a job he turned down at first. But then when Nixon called him again at the Waldorf Astoria, he reluctantly accepted. As a Supreme Court justice, Lewis Powell was very much the moderate, and his legacy on the high court would reflect his balanced and authentic interpretation of the rule of law in America. However, just a few months before he was nominated by Nixon, Powell had written a memo to his good friend Eugene Sindor Jr., the director of the United States Chamber of Commerce at the time, and Powell's most indelible mark on our nation was not to be his 15-year tenure as a Supreme Court justice, but instead that memo, which served as a declaration of war, a war by the economic royalists against both democracy and what they saw as an overgrown middle class. It would be a final war, a bella omnium contra omnis, against everything the New Deal and the Great Society had accomplished. It wasn't until September 1972, 10 months after the Senate confirmed Powell, that the public first found out about the Powell memo. The actual document had the word confidential stamped on it, a sign that Powell himself hoped it would never see daylight outside of the rarefied circles of his rich friends. By then, however, it had already found its way to the desks of CEOs all across the nation and was, with millions in corporate and billionaire money, already being turned into real actions, policies, and institutions. During its investigation into Powell as part of the nomination process, the FBI never found the memo, but investigative journalist Jack Anderson did, and he exposed it in a September 28, 1972 column titled, Powell's Lessons to Business Aired. Anderson wrote, shortly before his appointment to the Supreme Court, Justice Lewis F. Powell Jr. urged business leaders in a confidential memo to use the courts as a social, economic, and political instrument. Pointing out that the memo wasn't discovered until after Powell was confirmed by the Senate, Anderson wrote, Senators never got a chance to ask Powell whether he might use his position on the Supreme Court to put his ideas into practice and to influence the court on behalf of business interests. This was an explosive charge being leveled at the nation's rookie Supreme Court justice, a man entrusted with interpreting our nation's laws with absolute impartiality. But Jack Anderson was no stranger to taking on American authority and no stranger to the consequences of his journalism. He'd exposed scandals from the Truman, Eisenhower, Nixon, and later the Reagan administrations. He was a true investigative journalist. In his report on the memo, Anderson wrote, Powell recommended a militant political action program ranging from the courts to the campuses. Powell's memo was both a direct response to Roosevelt's battle cry decades earlier 
and a response to the tumult of the 1960s. He wrote, quote, no thoughtful person can question that the American economic system is under broad attack, end quote. When Sindor and the chamber received the Powell memo, corporations were growing tired of their second-class status in America. Even though the previous 40 years had been a time of great growth and strength for the American economy and America's middle-class workers, and a time of sure and steady increases in profits for corporations, CEOs felt something was missing. If they could only find a way to wiggle back into the people's minds, who were just beginning to forget the royalists' previous exploits in the 1920s that had crashed our economy, then they could get their tax cuts back. They could trash the burdensome regulations that were keeping the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the food we eat safe. And the banksters among them could inflate another massive economic bubble to make themselves all mind-bogglingly rich. It could, if done right, be a return to the roaring 20s. But how could they do this? How could they convince Americans to take another shot at what was widely considered a dangerous free market ideology and economic framework and that Americans once knew preceded every great crash in war. But Lewis Powell had an answer, and he reached out to the Chamber of Commerce, the hub of corporate power in America, with a strategy. As Powell wrote, strength lies in organization, in careful long-range planning and implementation, in consistency of action over an indefinite period of years, in the scale of financing available only through joint effort, and in the political power available only through unified action and national organizations. Thus, Powell said, the role of the National Chamber of Commerce is therefore vital. The crash of 2016. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu. Slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? 
Picture this, central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's home equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Welcome back. We're talking with Ann Nelson. She's the author of a brilliant new book, Shadow Network, Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. And we were just talking about how there's so much attention been paid to the Powell memo in 1971 over the years, but almost nobody has been paying attention to the Council for National Policy, which Paul Weyrich and these other folks started back in 1981, the first year of the Reagan administration. And you were talking about how the Federalist Society and the Judicial Crisis Network, which have funneled tens of millions of dollars of money where we have no idea who the donors were, into massive television advertising campaigns and massive campaign contributions, apparently, to Republican members of the Senate to get Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh and now Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. To what extent are organizations like the Federalist Society, the Judicial Crisis Network, aligned with the Council for National Policy or subordinate to or subsets of the CNP? Leonard Leo, who was until very recently the head of the, the, well, the the operating vice president of the Federal Society, has been a a long-term leading member of the Council for National Policy. So he's been in this strain of right-wing Catholics who have been promoting their agenda and using the Council for National Policy for their networking. In 2005, he and several other people involved with the Council for National Policy, including Trump's lawyer, Jay Sekulow, right, and Ed Meese, whom we remember from the Reagan administration, along with C. Boyd and Gray, co-founded what became the Judicial Crisis Network, right, 2005. The head of the Mm -hmm. the Judicial Crisis Network, Carrie Severino, is now on the executive committee of the Council for National Policy. So it's, it's absolutely interwoven. And as I said, they promote themselves as being separate voices, but they're working in absolute coordination. And not only that, the secret to their success, I believe, is their ability to execute long-term strategies. So, for example, the Judicial Crisis Network, which has renamed itself as the Concord Fund, purchased the domain name of Confirm Barrett, right, for Amy Coney Barrett, in November 2017. Whoa. Three years ago. So this is serious long-term planning. Um, They've done the same thing for a few other federal judges, right? Oh, absolutely. They've had their own pipeline, which runs straight through the Federalist Society, where they select and groom these individuals, and they promote them not based on their qualifications as judges, I'm afraid, because there's, you know, you look at Merrick Garland and his qualifications versus Amy Coney Barrett's, and there's no comparison. I mean, just in terms of their careers, their education, their achievements, it's really a pipeline that rests on ideology. And as an yeah, American she, citizen, it breaks my heart because the politicization of the judiciary is really a danger to our democracy. Right. And she'd only been a judge for three years. And the only reason she was a judge was because uh, when President Obama nominated a highly qualified African-American woman for a position in the Seventh Circuit Court, 
Mitch McConnell refused to process that application, that nomination in the Senate for a year. And as a result, that seat was left open. And as soon as Trump came in, McConnell put Amy Coney Barrett in that seat to set her up for this. One of the big questions that I've kind of struggled with through this, or I you know, just do in general, is the question of why. You mentioned in your book, you talk about you know, John Calvin. And the Protestant church back in the day was struggling with the question, you know, if we're all evil because we're all born of women and Eve ate the apple, and, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then how do we figure out who the good people are who can lead us? How do we come up with leaders? And Calvin's answer, or at least the, the answer of his followers to that question was, well, God has told us who, who he loves. This was all preordained before the creation of the world. And we can see that in the visible evidence of God's blessings, that is, they are rich. I mean, is it that simple that these people are neo-Calvinists and they actually believe that rich equals good and good equals an obligation or, or a need to rule? I think it is for some of them. And I would point to the DeVos and the Prince families because they come are from a branch. They are literal as, I mean, they're, they're right-wing fringe Calvinists. So the idea is that God rewards the worthy with prosperity, and he punishes the unworthy who are going to hell anyway by making them poor. And of course, this kind of misses out on a lot of what goes on in human history and society. But if you subscribe to those values, I suppose you can take a winner-take-all attitude and say, we deserve to have the entire pie, because that's, those are the rules they play by. That's remarkable. Ann Nelson is with us. Shadow Network is her book, Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Stick around. The hidden history of the war on voting tells how the GOP has been stealing elections for decades and will again this year, unless we stop them. And welcome back. Ann Nelson is with us. She's the author of a new book, Shadow Network, Media Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. It is absolutely brilliant. And some years ago, I've been doing this show for 17 years, and probably a decade or maybe even a little more than that ago, every year there's an annual convention in New York City that's put on by Michael Harrison and Talkers Magazine. It's sort of the, the, the official trade publication of the talk radio industry. And they have a lunch, you know, a, a luncheon with a guest speaker and all that kind of stuff. And, and I found myself sitting next to one of the senior executives at Salem Radio Networks. And, you know, we were talking radio and, and I said, have you ever thought about putting a progressive on any of your stations? Because they've got, you know, stations in pretty much all the major cities around the country. And he was like, um, oh, no, we would never do that. We're a Christian company. We were started as a Bible publishing company and we still publish Bibles and uh, we would not put anybody on the air who's not a Christian. And I said, well, I'm a Christian, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, openly. And, and he said, oh, no, you can't be a liberal and be a Christian, a true Christian. And then change the subject or words to that effect. You know, it's, it's been some years. I don't remember the exact word for word, but it was damn close to that. And I've kind of always scratched my head about that conversation and about, you know, what that was all about. And then in your book, I read that Salem is part of the Council for National Policy or affiliated with them or somehow associated with them. 
Tell us about their media strategy, please. So, yes, Salem is a key partner for the Council for National Policy, and it's played, I believe, an important but largely hidden role in bringing Trump to power. The two founders and CEOs of Salem have been, one of them has been the president of the Council for National Policy in the past, and the other has been a leading figure there. So the way it works is the Council for National Policy will have people who are strategists, say people like uh, Weyrich and, and Vigory in the past, and other strategists moving into the present time. And they'll figure out what messages they're going to promote. Some of these are long-range messages, such as what they do on abortion. Democrats believe in abortion, abortion on demand up until the day of birth. Not true. Not true in the least. But it is the slogan that they've gotten mileage with, so they repeat it endlessly across their, their media platforms. And some people believe it. So that, that gets drummed in. They'll also have reactive messaging about day-to-day events. So, for example, during Black Lives Matter, the cities of the United States are living in a state of anarchy. You have to elect Trump in order to respond to it and have a peaceful life in your suburbs. But that message might change week to week. So Salem Media is fascinating. It's the biggest media organization you've never heard of for most people. And they distribute content to something like 3,000 radio stations across the country. A lot of my colleagues on the East Coast don't understand how powerful radio is in much of the country. But you get these stations, some of which are religious, some of which are what are called Christian contemporary music, some of them are right-wing talk, and they just broadcast this messaging across their platforms. There are other radio partners, the Bot Network, which is mostly in the Southwest, the American Family Radio Network, which is hugely homophobic and Islamophobic and virulent, and that's based in Tupelo, Mississippi, with, with over 100 stations. So they are all pumping out this uniform messaging to their audiences. Now, Salem has gone and multiplied its platforms. So it has outlets like the Daily Caller, which is an online platform for which Ginny Thomas, Mrs. Clarence Thomas is a so-called correspondent. She's also a member of the Council for National Policy. So you have this kind of wraparound media effect going online, on radio, on Christian broadcasting network television, and many other outlets so that people inside this media bubble may have no other idea of reality. It's uh, extraordinary. To what extent is Fox News and Cumulus and uh, what used to be called Clear Channels, now iHeartRadio or the other, those are the two, I believe, largest radio networks in the country. And then Fox News, of course, you know, with billionaire Rupert Murdoch, are, are they associated with the Council for National Policy? So I've dug around in this. It's not entirely conclusive. But you have mm-hmm. figures like Todd Starnes, who's been a member of the Council for National Policy. He's also been on Fox News. He has a very checkered history as a journalist. You have proxies such as this duo called Diamond and Silk, who are favorites. They're supposed to be soliciting the African-American voter for Trump. And they're connected. They can appear on Fox sometimes and not other times. But I don't think there's a direct correlation, and I, I don't see a direct correlation with the other companies you mentioned either. 
Yeah. However, I do think that by the time you look at, I mean, go to the Salem Media website and look at their list of properties. And they include Regnery Publishing, which is the biggest right-wing book publishing house in the country, as well as feature film productions, music production, and, and many, many online outlets such as PJ Media, etc. And once you pump these into social media, you really get traction. Yeah, it becomes a massive echo chamber of organizations that appear to be disparate, but in fact are all intertwined. I was surprised to see Kellyanne Conway's name on this. Her husband, George, just tweeted that Anonymous, you know, the guy who wrote that op-ed a couple of years ago in the New York Times saying, we're, we're holding back Donald Trump. Don't worry, we're inside the administration. And I retweeted that with uh, words to the effect of uh, poop meat fan, you know. But Kellyanne Conway, his wife? In the Council for yeah. National Policy? She's not she a billionaire. In the, well, no, no, there are many people who are not billionaires in the group. They have different functions. So she was in the 2014 directory, which was published by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And for years, that was the only roster that researchers like me had access to. Now, there's been a treasure trove of internal documents that have been accessed and published. And I refer people to the Center for Media and Democracy, which has published a whole bunch of videos, which are extremely interesting from internal CNP meetings. And also documented.net has published material that's related. It's overlapping. And so, boy, howdy, you can see a lot of activities going on in these videos, including media operations, methods of challenging the vote on a state level, and one of my least favorite, which is COVID disinformation, which has been presented as a project at a Council for National Policy meeting. I've been on the mailing list of FreedomWorks for years, I mean, going back to the Tea Party, and I've been getting, starting in April, starting in mid-April, right after the, all these reports came out that the majority of people dying from COVID were African-American or Hispanic rather than white people, proportionate to the population. Suddenly, there was all this stuff from FreedomWorks about, we got to open the economy, get back to work, come on, now. To what extent is the Koch network, which kicked off FreedomWorks to start the, the Tea Party, to what extent are they connected to the Council for National Policy? Okay. Adam Brandon, who runs FreedomWorks, is on the executive committee of the Council for National Policy Action Organization, which is their, their lobbying arm. So it's directly connected. The Koch brothers overlap, but not 100 percent. Wow. And what about ALEC? You said you mentioned ALEC earlier. They, ALEC is in is... for the count. Very active. The head of ALEC is a very active member of the Council for National Policy. And there is a lot of interaction among them and the Republican Attorneys General Association, RAGA. All of it pushing things on the state level. Remarkable. We're talking with Ann Nelson. The book is Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Ann Nelson in our Conversations of Great Minds segment here today. Excellent. 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Anne, can you fill us in a little more about how the uh, Council for National Policy operates at the state level? I know ALEC is a nationwide organization. They bring in state legislators to sit with lobbyists and work things out. In fact, we had uh, Congressman Mark Pocan, a Democrat from Wisconsin, on this program, uh, Jesus, seems like six, eight years ago, as he was crashing an ALEC meeting and being dragged out, you know. <laughs> Uh, we discovered a, a Democrat <laughs> or a liberal. But there are state networks as well. There are discrete ones in each state, and then there is a network of these. Is there not? And, and, and to what extent are these associated with the Council for National Policy? Well, all I can say is that the heads of ALEC, as well as the state policy network, are very active members of the Council for National Policy. So again, this is a matter of coordination. And I've been studying it now for a few years, and I have friends who are prominent attorneys, and what they have explained to me is that some states have weaker legal systems than others, and I'm afraid that includes my home state of Oklahoma. So what you can do in those cases is propose state legislation, and for example, it might be about abortion, or it has been about abortion, or it might be about compromising the civil and political rights of the LGBT population, which has happened in various states, including Texas. And you get these laws passed, and then you get them replicated across state lines to friendly Republican states. You test them in the courts of states where they're going to have a good chance of being validated. And then you keep leveraging up and up the system and getting this kind of creep of erosion of our political and civil rights, state by state. And of course, part of this strategy has been to plant their supporters in the federal judiciary, and that has been happening under the Trump administration apace. A record number of their supporters planted in the federal judiciary, including the Supreme Court. So their stated goal is to remake American society in their image, which is not remotely the image of the American citizenry as it exists today. Yeah, you mentioned uh, de Tocqueville in your book at one point. His understanding of American society was quite different than theirs, it seems. Yeah, I think that, you know, for me, and I've studied a fair amount of American history, the beauty of the American idea is that this country was founded at a time when people were killing each other over religion in Europe and in England. And so the founders came to, you know, their families came to the United States and looked for a way to live and let live. You practice your religion, whatever it is, as long as it doesn't encroach on me. And that is, in fact, what has happened. And as we've progressed as a nation, that idea of inclusion and tolerance has expanded as well. 
And that's what these people want to roll back. Right. We don't want an Oliver Cromwell. They do, apparently. Ann Nelson is with us. Her book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. We'll be right back with, uh, with more of our conversation in just a moment. Stick around. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Bob Nay's book, Sideswiped, Lessons Learned Courtesy of the Hitmen of Capitol Hill. Bob was the only member of Congress. He was a Republican congressman. In fact, he was the guy who invented the phrase freedom fries. That far right, yes. He was the only member of Congress who spoke Farsi, which is the language they speak in Iran. The Iranian government during the Bush administration, George W. Bush, sent a letter to or delivered a letter to Bob in Farsi, because he spoke Farsi, saying that they were willing to recognize Israel and stop their nuclear program in exchange for recognition by the United States. Bob delivered that to the Bush White House. And within a short time, Bob found himself in a federal prison. And that letter never surfaced. And that rapprochement never happened. It's an amazing story. It's, a, it's too long to read as an excerpt, but it's in the book the end of Bob's political career. Now he's working for Talk Media News. But this is from chapter 17 of his book. It's titled Political Strong Arming. I had a major blowout over the Head Start program with Andy Card, President George W. Bush's chief of staff. The first of the legislation debates centered on Head Start. John Boehner was doing his best to acquire votes to hurt the program. I had supported Head Start for years as an Ohio state senator and again as a U.S. congressman. When George Bush became president, however, every issue, including this one, was treated as though, if lost, it would be the end of the world, as if winning were vital to save the presidency. Speaker Hastert became a lapdog for President Bush. Didn't matter whether it was overspending, crushing unions, ripping the legs out from under head start, Hastert acted like the president ran the House instead of the other way around. I found myself under intense pressure to vote against head start. I was bombarded by all sides, Tom DeLay, Hastert's staff, and the chairman of the Education Committee, which at the time was John Boehner. I found it amazing that a sitting president would make a do-or-die issue over taking money away from poor children who needed a jump on school, a head start. Anyone in the field of education knew that Head Start had a rocky beginning, but it had proven to be statistically and socially a very fine program, and I had always supported it. I had a private hideaway, an office the speaker gives to leaders and uh, long-term older members of Congress that very few people knew about. Even Brian Walsh, my press secretary, was unaware. On this particular evening, I was in that Capitol hideaway, one floor directly below the chamber. I was sick and tired of being lobbied and bullied on this vote. I had to escape the arm twisting. I used to say it was so bad that you could hear the bones snap on the floor of the house. My private phone in the hideaway was ringing, so I knew that only Ted Van Der Mead of the Speaker's office could have given it out. Chris Kruger, my executive assistant, answered it and signaled me that it was Andy Card, the White House Chief of Staff. Andy said, we need this head start vote. It's critical to the Bush administration's future. I was stunned at this. The entire future of the Bush administration was predicated on beating up on little unfortunate kids by taking away their head start funding. I thought this was idiocy and stupid politics. I said, I have always supported Head Start over my entire career. I don't like this vote, and I just cannot help you. Card blew up at me and responded with, let me make this clear. Boehner said you were a vote for us, and we are holding you to that. I don't know where Boehner got that from, I said. I can rethink this, but I, but I don't like it, and I'm sure I will not change my mind. Andy then said, you are an effing liar. Only spells out the word. 
And I said, F you, Andy, and your idiotic administration. And I hung up on him. I went to the floor of the house where Boehner confronted me. I told him, Andy is disrespectful, way out in left field on this. He can kiss my ass and, and F him, period. Boehner continued to strong army. They were one vote short. It boiled down to the fact that this vote was so hideous, so wrong, that they simply could not get the votes. One of my best friends in Congress, Steve LaTourette, took a bullet for me on this to move the bill along. He told him to back off on me, and he would help through the process in the House, but not necessarily if or when the vote came back from the Senate. Second time Andy Card ran afoul of Congress, he had to confront Congressman Steve LaTourette. Steve was one of the finest members of Congress, very brave in his positions, an independent thinker, good at politics, and no wallflower. He's conservative on some issues, but he cares deep down about working people and how they survive in America. At this writing, Steve has left Congress, frustrated with the lack of acceptance of moderates within the Republican Party. So anyhow, there's just all these amazing inside stories about how Congress actually works. It's pretty grim. The book Sideswiped by Bob Ney. Welcome back. We're talking with Ann Nelson about her book Shadow Network. And in summary, it seems, what we have here with the Council for National Policy is a group devoted to establishing and then once established maintaining oligarchy in the United States. Would that be an overstatement? I think so. And it's got two big components. One is the religious and social. So again, it's rolling back civil and political rights for a lot of Americans, women, LGBT, minorities, immigrants, etc. These are not to be equal citizens. The other part is all about the money. I'm convinced of it. You've got the DeVos family, which doesn't like investigations by the government of their business malpractice. You've got the Koch brothers who don't like environmental regulations that stop them from polluting our rivers and our air and our, our, our soil. And so they want to dismantle the government as something that stands in their way. And they also don't want to pay any taxes. <laughs> and they especially don't want to pay any taxes that benefit anybody else, whether it's children, whether it's impoverished people, whether it's elders. So that means eroding and eventually eliminating social programs and the government agencies that administer them. It sounds extreme, but my book has a thousand footnotes. I think I've documented it thoroughly. It is that oh, yeah. harsh. Yeah, you've certainly convinced me. <laughs> you know, this is like full bore oligarchy. So, which raises the question if Donald Trump, through his, I would say, probably character flaws more than anything else, because I think that if he had handled the coronavirus appropriately, he'd probably be cruising to re-election right now. But if he loses terribly and the Senate is lost and the House is retained by Democrats, how is the Council for National Policy going to respond to this? Is this just another opportunity to, to go hard like they did against Bill Clinton and Barack Obama with their radio and media networks and everything else? I mean, what kind of response do you expect? Well, they've floated a lot of ideas at their meetings, which we've just recently gotten access to. And they've floated the idea of having Navy SEAL veterans helping to guard polling places in urban areas. So they have looked at a lot of different approaches to voter suppression and discrediting the vote. In a recent meeting, they met with Republicans attorneys general to see if they can have state-level means of challenging the vote. And again, I'm, I can't answer this definitively. I'm reading the tea leaves. 
But I think the whole purpose of packing the courts in the way that they've done is to mount every possible loophole, bizarre legal challenge that they can to thwart the will of the people. And I asked you earlier why these people are doing this. And you just talked about, you know, wanting less regulation, wanting more money. We talked about neo-Calvinism. Is there, beyond those things, kind of a divine right to rule, is there a governing philosophy here? Well, Tom, I'm somebody with a foot in each culture. I go back to Oklahoma a few times a year. I've lived in New York City. And I do feel that there is a kind of regional resentment. Basically, nobody of importance in this group is from New York or Boston, right? It's like this regional resentment where they want to take back what they think is theirs. I do feel that there's a little macho element because it is a very male-dominated culture, even though there are prominent women in it. But, for example, Phyllis Schlafly was one of the founding members, and her organization wow. is still very active in it. So, Oh, she so, was a regular on this show, by the way. <laughs> I used to well, debate her all the time. <laughs> okay. You know whereof I speak. Yes. And I think that it's very interesting to trace that path from Phyllis Schlafly through Amy Coney Barrett and this whole idea that women achieve prominence by by arguing for the domination over other women. I, I, I find that very problematic. Yeah, and kind of breathtaking. So to summarize, uh, because we're, we're running out of time here, your book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, and we're talking about the Council for National Policy. What can we do about this? Well, if Trump and the Republicans take the government in the election, very little. Right. And if they don't, we need to rethink, starting with the IRS and going on to creating media systems that really serve people in the middle of the country and don't allow this vacuum for them to be dominated by this misinformation. Those are the first two Absolutely. things on my list. Absolutely brilliant. Ann Nelson, the book Shadow Network, Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Read it. Share it with your friends. And thanks a lot for dropping by today. It's great talking. Thanks so much, Tom. My pleasure. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It needs you. And it's too late to mail your ballot in. So figure out a way to get it there physically. Tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Thank you.